The life cycle of data management includes data cleaning, data extraction, integration, analysis, and exploration, and of course, machine learning models. And it would be great if all of this data management could be handled with automation, but unfortunately that's not an option. For most applications, data management requires a human in the loop. A human in the loop might be responsible for working in a spreadsheet or labeling data as a mechanical Turk, or creating an algorithm for data labeling and snorkel. And data scientists and data analysts are humans in the loop as well. They're studying large data sets. Aditya Parameswaran is an assistant professor at UC Berkeley, and he studies human-in-the-loop data analytics. He joins the show today to talk about the work and the projects that he is focused on, including Data Spread, which is an alternative to Excel, and Orpheus DB, which is a relational database versioning system. If you want to reach 30,000 unique engineers every day, consider sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Whether you're hiring engineers or selling a product to engineers, Software Engineering Daily is a great place to reach talented engineers. And you can send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com, if you're curious about sponsoring the podcast. Aditya, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You're an assistant professor at UC Berkeley, and one of your concerns is human-in-the-loop data analytics. Can you explain what human-in-the-loop data analytics is? Sure. So human-in-the-loop data analytics is a new area of research that uh, many of us have started coalescing around. And so human-in-the-loop data analytics refers to the idea that it's not just the data that's important during data analytics, but also the human who is performing the analytics. So the analyst or data scientist, if you will. And so tools, infrastructure, techniques have to be designed with the end user in mind, uh, rather than simply thinking about the scalability of the data or, or the infrastructural aspects. So it also needs to be taking into account the fact that the end users, many of whom may not have substantial programming expertise, should be able to easily get insights from data. So that's the high level principle. So how does that happen? Well, if you were to build tools to make it easy for end users to get interesting insights from data, the tools need to, do, need to now do more of the heavy lifting. So the tools need to be intelligent, they need to be support automated, they need to be able to be more automated, they need to expose intuitive mechanisms for end users who may not necessarily know how to program. So interactive intuitive mechanisms so that these users can actually make sense of data without having to do a lot of work. And that work could be writing code, digging through lots of data, or what have you. And what human-in-the-loop data analytics means in practice, is this like I'm a data scientist and I'm actually doing work munging data, or I'm a data analyst, I'm staring at an Excel spreadsheet? What does this mean in practice? Yeah, so I mean, like literally in every field, ranging from industry to the sciences, to government organizations, to medicine, you have this notion of a data scientist wanting to make sense of their data. And often they have a lot of it. And often, unfortunately, the tools fail them, right? So if you have a spreadsheet, for example, and the tool that you're comfortable with is a spreadsheet, and spreadsheets are incredibly popular and for good reason. I mean, they are very intuitive. They are reasonably powerful. But when you try to load a large data set into a spreadsheet, the spreadsheet 
fails. You can't really load a data set that goes beyond a million rows into a spreadsheet. So a spreadsheet is a perfectly fine data analytical tool, but it doesn't seem to work on large data sets. So likewise, many of the other tools that people try to use for big data, either they require a lot of programming or they require or they don't work on large data sets. So it's either pick one, pick your, choose your adventure, right? So it's not, you can't get the best of both worlds. And really human in the loop data analytics is trying to build intuitive, is about building intuitive tools that also scale. So that you want the expressiveness and the intuitiveness of spreadsheets, but also working on very large data sets, right? So you want to be able to uh, specify at a high level what you're looking for, like at Google search interface, uh, wherein you can type in a few keywords and you the system helps you find interesting web pages. What if you could do that with your data, right? So that's the sort of goal. Um, and, and in practice, yes, so people are using tools like spreadsheets. They're using, uh, they're sometimes using computational notebooks like Jupyter. They are uh, all writing code in, in, in languages like Python or Scala or Java. And often if you're not super comfortable with programming, this is can be pretty onerous and pretty overwhelming to end users. And so we really need to meet them in the middle with tools that can help them reduce their burden and, and sort of help do a lot of the heavy lifting for them. So do some of the automation for them. So I think about Google suite of, of business tools becoming more machine learning aware, like typing in, you know, giving you an autocomplete in your Google Docs, for example. That's one way that tooling could become uh, more effective. What are some other ways that human-in-the-loop data analytics tooling could become more effective? Sure. So there are various ways. The, the first is preserving the interface while increasing the scale that the interface supports. Right. So again, going back to the spreadsheet, you want to preserve the spreadsheet interface. You want people to use a spreadsheet just like they would, while also being able to support billions of rows or, or trillions of rows. Right. So in some sense, that's just one way, just increasing the scalability could be really valuable for end users. So in fact, I have this anecdote of a, a genomics uh, group that we were collaborating with at Mayo Clinic. And so this genomics group would generate very large data sets, right? So they would generate data sets that are gigabytes large. And often these are people who are not super comfortable with programming. So they wouldn't be able to actually inspect these data sets to check for correctness. So they would ship this to their bioinformatics collaborators simply to just have them open it, check, the, check it for correctness, and then tell them, hey, you know what? We are good to go on this, on this data set. So, even something as simple as opening and looking at your data set is impossible on current tools that end, like domain users, end users would be able to be comfortable with, right? So spreadsheets wouldn't suffice. They are super comfortable with spreadsheets, but spreadsheets wouldn't suffice for this simple task. So the first goal would be improving scalability. The second goal would be making it easier or, in, uh, or more intuitive to express more complex needs. And this is where uh, some of that intelligence comes in, right? So, and guesswork comes in from on the part of the system, right? So the system could, like like you mentioned, in email could help you auto-complete your emails, right? So that that is an example of an auto-completion. It's an example of intelligence. It's an example of automation. 
in the data analytics or data science space, this could be trying to guess what the data scientist is trying to do, right? And extrapolating from those examples, right? So if, so one example of a system that we built is a tool that allows you to sketch a pattern with the system trying to find matches for that pattern. So let me give you an example. So let's say I'm looking for uh, a product whose uh, sales has been increasing, but profits have been decreasing. And so to do so, you might provide a canvas where the user would actually sketch a curve on, on a chart saying, hey, I want something that's increasing for uh, sales, but decreasing for profits. And so they draw a line on a chart and give it to you. Now, this is, a, I would call this a query, right? So this is a query that these, the user has given to the system. Now the system has to figure out whether any subsets of data match that query, right? So uh, is it product A or product B that actually matches that user provided specification? So the system has to do the matching process and there's a lot of ambiguity in this matching process too, right? Because if a product, what does it mean for the product sales to be going up, right? So there could be a few uh, sort of bumps along the way. Does it, uh, so how do I classify a product as having matched that pattern? So there's a little bit of guesswork on the part of the system in meeting the users midway. So honestly, I think the, the, the two key mechanisms is are in improving scalability. And the second is in, in intelligence and automation, meeting the users midway. So you built a number of tools that are seeking to realize some of the conclusions that you have about human in the loop data analytics could you give me example an, an example of a tool that you've built and how that exemplifies what you're trying to do with human in the loop data analytics sure so returning to spreadsheets spreadsheets is a i know that spreadsheets are a, to many spreadsheets are a deeply unsexy topic but it's one of the topics that's close to my heart so in the realm of spreadsheets, we, we built a tool called uh, Data Spread. So Data Spread was the starting point for us was to try to say, hey, can we preserve the spreadsheet front end? So the, the intuitiveness, the flexibility of the spreadsheet front end, while also providing the benefits of databases. Right? So as we all know, databases are ex extremely expressive, they're powerful, they're scalable. So can we bring, in some sense, the two together. So preserve the front end, replace the back end, right? And so we built this tool called Data Spread, which is trying to uh, do a holistic um, marriage of these two modalities. Preserve uh, the features that people really crave from a spreadsheet standpoint, but, but also uh, adding scalability. Now, the first challenge that we dealt with was the fact that, hey, look, spreadsheets can't support very large data sets. So a spreadsheet would act as a, a tiny window into the data set, which is actually stored in your database, right? So the entirety of your data set would be stored in your database. The spreadsheet would basically be a front end to the database. Next, we realized that just because you can look at a million rows in your spreadsheet doesn't actually mean anything, right? So how do you even make sense of a data set that has a million, a hundred million rows or a billion rows? Imagine scrolling through a spreadsheet with a billion rows. It's, it's impossible to locate anything of interest. So what we decided was, hey, we need to build in intuitive navigation capabilities into data spread so that you can zoom in and zoom out 
of uh, of a spreadsheet on demand. So what is can we bring the analogies of the, 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 the interactions that are so common in mapping software like Google Maps to a spreadsheet? And what does it mean to view a spreadsheet at a, at a coarser granularity or a fine granularity? So we built in some of these, uh, some of these functionalities. The other uh, opportunity that we realized in spreadsheets at least is that often people in complex spreadsheets, people end up spending a lot of time waiting for a spreadsheet to complete computation and they end up waiting for 15 minutes, half an hour, and sometimes the spreadsheet crashes, especially if it is complex spreadsheets with financial information where, or accounting information where there's a lot of nested and, and uh, complex networks of formulae. So in such cases, we de decided, hey, you know what we can do? We can simply apply a UI trick to this. We can replace the in-progress computation with a progress bar like you would in, when you're downloading files. So we'd replace the in-progress computation, the progress bar, and then compute this computation in the background as the users continue to look, looking, continue to explore the spreadsheet. So this is, in some sense, bringing the notion of asynchronous computation to spreadsheets, which has never been done before, right? So it's not synchronous in that you're not returning responses immediately, you're doing it in the background. And the user is aware of what is going on because we've replaced the computation with the progress bar. So we're basically improving the interactivity of spreadsheets in this manner. So th this is one example of uh, a tool that we've built. If you'd like, it, I can give you another example too, or I'm happy to move to something else. I would like to know, have you shown this to people who are in situations where they might be using a spreadsheet in the wild? Have you seen practical applications of it and have you gotten some prototypical users and have you gotten some feedback from them? Right, so going back to my genomics example uh, that I mentioned earlier, we worked with those users to uh, provide a spreadsheet interface for them. And uh, so they were our start, starting point for this whole entire project. And so they've, they've been sort of really good potential users for data spread. Data spread is still very much a work in progress. So it's, I wouldn't say it is a finished product, but it is, it's still a work in progress. And so we are continuing to work with these genomics users who are uh, were our initial target users and continue to be one important target users for us. The other thing that we are doing is also partnering with folks who build spreadsheet systems. So been working with folks in Google Sheets as well as LibreOffice and trying to translate some of the lessons that we've learned into these commercial or open source uh, spreadsheet platforms. And when you talk to the, I'm very curious about the interactions with the Google Sheets people, what have come out of those conversations? What do you think lies in the future of their spreadsheet platform? So what I can tell you is that it's clear that they recognize that there is a need towards democratizing access to very large data. And they view very large data sets as the next frontier for Google Sheets as well, because this is coming to them from their enterprise customers. A lot of them who are telling them, hey, you know what, we have these very large data sets. We'd like to analyze it in Google Sheets. Why does Google Sheets crash or freeze or, uh, or break when I try to load in this data set. And so they are, rec they are recognizing these problems and part of the reason why they initiated this contact with us was because they felt that some of the 
the scalability techniques that we've developed would directly apply to their uh, tool as well. So they are aware of some of these issues. The fact that in some sense, this uh, a, a spreadsheet is, is a great intuitive, flexible tool, but also constrained by what they have done so far. So there's a lot of backward compatibility issues. And in some sense, view, taking a clean slate approach to uh, the spreadsheet universe like we've done can inform their, so in some sense, it's an ideal testbed to see if ideas will work or not. And, and if, uh, if this leads to sort of uh, more adoption, more uh, usability, more scalability, and then they can adopt it in their systems. Okay, it's kind of exciting. I mean, the idea of working with really, really large data sets productively in a spreadsheet, I mean, I think it's something that people would want to do, but it's not really feasible today. Let's zoom out and, and talk about the life cycle of data analytics. So when I think about the life cycle of data management, you've got data cleaning, you've got extraction, You've got analysis and exploration. You've got machine learning. You've got a c collaboration. Tell me about the outstanding problems in the life cycle of data management. That's a great question, and it's a really important question. So, and I think it's an unanswered one. So, so in some sense, there are various steps in this data analytics pipeline, ranging from cleaning to exploration to analytics to machine learning, like you said and possibly even deployment of machine learning models and, and what have you. So unfortunately, current tools for each of these stages are not tied to each other. So you often have different tools for each step. So you may start with, so there are tools like spreadsheets, which are great if your data is already organized in a tabular fashion. You have other data preparation and data cleaning tools. Trifacta is a great example of that. There are tools that allow you to do visualization. So uh, Tableau is a great example of that. Looker is a great example of that. And then you have tools for machine learning and data science. So at least data science increasingly is happening in computational notebooks. Now, why are these tools all so different from each other and why are they catering to different audiences? Now, to me, I think there is a missed opportunity here. So, can we think about a tool that combines the benefits of all of these tools out there and also caters to a broader fraction of the population, right? So is there a magical tool that combines the benefits of spreadsheets, computational notebooks, interactive visualization tools like Tableau, as well as like data prep tools like Trifacta, right? So why should I use separate tools for each of these uh, steps in the pipeline? And another challenge here is the fact that I, even as someone who is fairly proficient in programming, do use spreadsheets. I do enjoy using spreadsheets once in a while when I want to quickly go and edit some data. At times, I might still want to use my data preparation tools like uh, Trifactor. I might want to, I often work in computational notebooks. So I actually use all four of these types of tools, but still, in some sense, I have to pick between them for given the problem at hand and I have to move data across them, which is not ideal. So the holy grail would be a tool that combines the benefits of all of these tools. So interactive visualization capabilities, the ability to write code and see the results immediately, like in computational notebooks, uh, the ability to quickly go and edit your data, like in, uh, like in spreadsheets, and also sort of get the data into the shape that you want, like in Trifactor, right? So those are the sorts of things that I would, as a data scientist, really like. 
machine learning is the next step of the pipeline. Uh, and there's a whole sort of can of worms in terms of um, how machine learning training happens, how model development happens, how deployment happens. None of this is done rigorously. And again, this happens across a bunch of different tools. And there is no clear emerging consensus on how this should be done well. So overall, I think there's a, there's a huge opportunity here for people to come and consolidate this space, thinking about the end-to-end -end data analytics pipeline, but also thinking about the skill sets of users, right? So you want tools that cater to both novices in terms of data science, but also the experts. And experts often also want to use the tools meant for novices. Experts also want to use interactive visualization tools like Tableau and spreadsheets, right? So you want these functionalities to not, not just be constrained to one fraction of the population. Okay. The other tools that you have built, there's ZenVisage, Orpheus DB. There's a number of other tools that are come to realization in your research. How do you have so many projects in flight? So I would say it's part of the joy and the danger of being a professor that you can have many PhD students who each of whom drive an independent project. And so often uh, groups of two or three PhD students end up getting together and driving a, a, a given project. Like, like in the case of OrpheusDB or ZenVisage, it's often a, a co small cohort of two to three students who uh, in some sense bring different skills to a project. So one of them might bring interaction or HCI, human-computer interaction skills. Another one might bring system skills. A third one might bring machine learning skills. And so you have a small cohort of people who bring sort of various skills to the project and then they build out a prototype and then uh, try talking to end users and seeing uh, the missing sort of missing aspects and improving on it. So uh, really that, that is how, how we do things in my group. We sort of have different projects ongoing at a time, many different projects actually. I try not, not to have too many. I try not to have more than five at any given time. But for each project, there's usually one or two students, PhD students who are driving it. And they are really the, the, the force behind the project in terms of doing the implementation, generating ideas and setting the vision for the project. And at some level, I feel like all that I'm doing is providing very high level guidance and, and making sure that I, there are no roadblocks in that way. Okay. So as we can continue through the this world of data analytics, I, I want to refocus on human in the loop data analytics and, and just get a better understanding of how you think the role of the human in the loop changes over time because obviously the tooling is going to in improve and i think a lot of the like some of the roles that that humans play today can be supplanted or replaced by machine learning tools like image classification for example and i just want to get your perspective on how the role of the human in the loop changes over time so I think there is a fine line between ceding too much autonomy and ceding too much authority to the uh, to the system, and what and also sort of to make the most of the system capabilities while also preserving some amount of control. Right. So the the way I would think about this is 
if you have a system wherein everything is automated, so if, it, if you are moving towards automated machine learning, for example, this from the per perspective of an end user would be good because they don't have to do much work. So they might not have to do feature engineering, they might not have to do data preparation, they might not have to do parameter tuning and so on and so forth. So this is less work on the part of the analyst who, or data scientist who is doing the analysis or machine learning. And so the system does most of the work. Now the downside of that is that the, the system uh, may make mistakes and you may end up with an objective, you may end up with the system ending up developing a model that is optimizing for the wrong objective. So having that fine-grained human control while the machine learning is happening is still very important to ensure that the system is not going completely awry. Right? So for as an example, there's this anecdote of a machine learning algorithm that was trained on uh, images across two different hospitals. And one hospital was a bigger hospital that was catering to the broad population. And the other, so this, these are chest x-rays, I believe. And so one, uh, one hospital that was catering to the broad population, another hospital that was catering to, that was a research-oriented hospital that was targeting the more quote-unquote deadly cases, right? Now, data from both of these hospitals was fed into a machine learning model. And the machine learning model, perhaps uh, somewhat surprisingly, was able to do a really good job on this radiological task, surpassing human experts. And so it was able to detect problematic cases way before, way better than human experts. And so once humans decided to go back and dig into why this machine learning algorithm was doing so well, they realized that all that the machine learning algorithm was doing was detecting that the images that were produced in the machine in the, the hospital that was a research hospital also had, it a, had a tag corresponding to the machine that was generating it. So the machine learning algorithm was simply looking for this tag and then saying, hey, these are uh, images of patients who had more problematic conditions than those that did. So it was just overfitting based on signatures output by the imaging software as opposed to actually doing something on the core task. So this problem would not have been caught if there were no humans in the uh, humans in the loop, right? So you really needed humans in the loop to be able to understand where this problem came from and how did the accuracy end up being so high. So overall, I think there is this balance of how much autonomy should a system have in the data analytics space is still an open one. I think I still think that leaving everything up to the system is a dangerous one. At least at the initial stages of exploration, there is really a lot of context, insight, and input that needs to happen from the data analyst or the human in the loop providing inputs to the system, making sure that the system is not doing something that is not what the data scientist or human in the loop intended. So it's really that guidance needs to be a lot more at the start, maybe towards the end when it's close to deployment, the guidance can be eased off, right? So you can move towards more automation. So at least at the start to set the objectives, set the context, making sure that the, the, the system is doing the right thing, there's a need for a lot of human input. And a project that you've been working on that is closely related to data science is Modin, which is a, a faster alternative to Pandas that uses the same API. 
we actually have a, a show coming up on Modin, but I'd love to get some perspective on your end. What are the shortcomings of Pandas? I guess you, you could explain what Pandas is and, and describe the shortcomings of it, and then we can talk about Modin a bit. Sure. So Pandas at a very high level is data frame library. So it's really a, a, a library for processing and working with tabular data in an intuitive manner. So this was, so data frames have their history in the statistics community. So the R programming language had a data frame implementation. And really you could view this as a set of observations. These are your rows and aspects of those observations. These are your columns. And it's really just a table if you think about it that way. The difference between data frames and and tables from a database or a relational context is that data frames are a lot more flexible. So you don't need to rigidly obey a schema like you would in a a database. You can have it be more ad hoc and more flexible and it can continually evolve over the course of data science. Now this, the fact that it's, it's more flexible means that it's a good fit for data science because at least at the start of your data analysis process, your data is often not structured in the way that you would want. And so you want to transform it so that it fits the mode that you want so that you can then do the analysis or then do the machine learning. And so Pandas is really valuable in bridging this gap, going from a somewhat structured data set to a fairly structured data set that you can then apply to your machine learning pipelines. So that was the original goal of Pandas. And Pandas is a Python implementation of a data frame library. Again, data frames came from R in the statistics community specifically. And so Pandas over the course of the last decade has had many, many contributions from various open source contributors adding more and more functionality. So right now Pandas has like 250 operators that you can apply to what looks like a table. So you can, for example, filter your table, you can join your table with other tables, you can transpose it, you can, so there are various sort of types of operators that combine both linear algebra or as well as relational algebra and expose all of that functionality to a a table. Now, what Modin was trying to do, so while, while it's great that there's so much functionality, so you have 250 plus operators, Part of the challenge is that many of these operators are not optimized. So they don't, they're not efficient. They don't work on very large data sets. Again, these are all community contributions, right? These are all open source contributions. So every time someone identifies a need, they will implement something and add it to the code base. And now you have a new function, but this function is not necessarily optimized. So in some sense, what our goal with Modin was to take a step back and think about how do you optimize the space of, provide similar functionality to pandas but also allow it to scale to large datasets. And this is a a theme in a lot of my work, uh, really thinking about preserving functionality that end users like, but allowing it to scale up to larger datasets. And so we are applying once again, database principles to allow us to optimize uh, Pandas queries or Pandas expressions, right? So can you apply the the familiar techniques of query planning and query optimization that that, uh, we've developed over the course of the last 30 years in the database community and have it bear on this important problem, which is in, can have an enormous impact because of the popularity of pandas, right? So pandas, people say, is the reason why Python is so popular. It is, it's, it's called as a lingua franca of for data science. 
right? So that is, it's important for us to make it better. It's important for us to make it faster. It's important for us to make it more scalable. So that's why we uh, built Modin. The work around Python's data science ecosystem, we had a show recently about Dask, and that's a, a way of building these distributed scalable objects for manipulating large data sets. How does Modin compare to the Dask project and, and the scalability approaches to data science there? Sure. So the Dask project, as well as another project called uh, Ray, which is another distributed executor, are both what I would consider as very capable backends for Modin. So Modin preserves the uh, Pandas API while just trying to scale up the execution thereof. So Modin's secret sauce, in some sense, is the translation from the Pandas API calls into a set of operations that can be then distributed and executed using an ex a distributed scheduler like Dask or Ray. Right? So you can imagine that Modin sits between Pandas and Dask or Ray, and in fact can use both of these as backends. Okay. And the value of use, being able to use either Ray or Dask, what, what is that? You know, if, if I can just get a better understanding for what that middleware layers. Right. So unlike why does Modern need to exist given Dask or Ray? Well, the first thing is that Modern preserves the Python API. You don't need to do anything, sorry, Pandas API. So you don't need to do anything different. So anything that you want to do in Pandas will continue to execute in Modern. Now for Dask and Ray, the reason why we wanted to do this was we said, look, let's build, let's ensure that Modin works with any distributed execution framework, not just Dask or Ray, so that if there's a new distributed execution framework that comes by, we would be able to use it. In fact, we one of our original goals was to actually use uh, databases as a, as a backend to Modin. So sit, again, have the databases be a third option to Dask or, or Ray. Um, now, you may debate as to whether it's a good idea. It, it may not be, but the goal was to not be tied to any one executor and have it be more generic. And that was the reason why we decided to go with both Dask and Ray to provide some flexibility and generality for, for Modin. What are the other outstanding problems in data science and particularly data science scalability that you're concerned with? Sure. So I'd like to return to some of the projects that you mentioned and, and tell you about some of the things that we are working through on those projects. So one of those projects is Zen Visage. And so Zen Visage, the goal of Zen Visage was to really say, people spend a lot of time looking at data visualizations. And often we found that our scientific collaborators spent all of their time pouring through these visualizations, trying to find patterns. And so our goal was, can we accelerate the search for patterns? Because if you're spending hours looking through visualizations, trying to find patterns, that is not a good use of your time. And this is the reason why they were spending this much amount of time was because often they don't have the programming chops to be able to quickly write some software that would help them look for these patterns. So they were looking for these patterns manually in a tool like Tableau or Excel. And so I think really thinking about 
fast forwarding to the, the desired patterns or fast forwarding to the desired insights is a key question that hasn't been fully addressed yet. We have made some progress on that question, but I don't think it's fully addressed yet. The other question which I think is really important is that data science is happening in a really, really ad hoc manner. So you have sort of workflow specified in computational notebooks, but these workflows are often not reproducible. The data sets that you generate over the course of these workflows are often not recorded in a principled manner. So the, you have many, many versions of each data set floating around. Uh, we've all encountered this. So if you ever look at our downloads folder or our files folder, you'll have many, many versions of your each of your Word files and your text files because you have stored your data sets at various stages of uh, experimentation. Orpheus, which is another project that we've been spending a lot of time on, is designed towards tracking and versioning your data and your code so that you can make sense of what has happened and retrieve it quickly on demand. So can you, for example, say, I, there's this new erroneous tuple that seems to have been introduced in my data set. Who introduced it? Why did they introduce it? When was it introduced? So can you point at various aspects of your data and get asked questions of this type? Similarly, can you, if you have two versions of your data set, can you do a diff between them so that you can understand the differences across them? Right, so those are the types of questions where really thinking about data lake management you have a data lake where you have lots of versions of the data set you want to make sense of it you want to uh, uh, have the analysis be reproducible i think still a very important and open uh, question so i would say broadly okay so the other interesting and important open question is in terms of managing machine learning development and this relates to the data lake management as well but right now, machine learning is again happening in a very ad hoc manner. One of the opportunities that we identified was that when people are developing machine learning workflows, they'll write a workflow end to end, they'll run it, and maybe they will find that their model doesn't have adequate accuracy. So they may then go and make a small change. So they may change some feature, they may change some regularization parameter, make some small tweak. And then they'll rerun this workflow from scratch. And often this would take, if it took two hours the first time, it's gonna take two hours the second time and two hours the third time. And it would basically be wasted effort. So instead, our tool was targeted at capturing intermediate data during the course of machine learning execution so that we can accelerate this process, so that we can identify, hey, you know what? All that you did was a small change. We'll make the workflow run a lot faster because we can automatically reuse previous work that you've done, right? So if it took two hours the first time to run, it might take two minutes a second time to run and two seconds a third time to run because it's already cached and materialized and, and recorded stuff that you've done previously and reusing some of that in the future. So this is a project called Helix that we spent a, a fair bit of time on. These research projects, do you have a vision for, do you see them as like case studies or do you see them having direct and practical application? Right. So I think it depends on the project. So Modin has been used with by a lot of folks. So it's been adopted and used and also has a lot of contributors. Zenvisage has been deployed in, in various groups. One group who was doing uh, battery science, another that was doing astronomy, a third group that was doing genomics. So these groups have used uh, Zen Visage. 
Helix, some of the Helix ideas have yet to make it make their way to end users. So we're still in the process of developing that. Uh, like I said, this, some of the spreadsheet work was designed with some of our genomics users in mind. So again, we are working with end users there. So overall, uh, the way our group approaches these software development efforts is to work closely with end users to make sure that the problems that we're solving are real problems and not non-problems and building tools to make sure it meets their needs, even if it's for a small group, as opposed to making sure we build a generalizable tool that addresses everyone's needs, which may never exist, right? So it, we want to make sure that at least a small group of potential end users would be happy using what we are building. So that is a philosophy that we adopt. Some, some of the students that I work with want to write the research papers, want to do the research, but don't necessarily want to spend a lot of their time engineering which is fine, as long as they are making tangible research advances that will have impact. So I wouldn't necessarily force my students to go one way or the other. It's entirely up to them. A lot of my students tend to veer towards doing things that also can be used by end users. Cool. So data science and data analytics, this is a broad term, it's a broad field. How do you see the next five years developing in terms of data science? I think the next five years are going to be interesting because I think overall uh, there's been such a vast number of data science tools that have been developed both from the open source community, the startup community, and in academia. And we are going to see, in some sense, a coalescing around a small set of tools or a small set of core guiding principles. It might be that everyone coalesces around the computational notebook ecosystem. It might be that uh, everyone coalesces around, I don't know, the spreadsheet ecosystem. It's hard to predict what these coalescing points would be. But uh, I think moving forward, we're going to see a lot of, I think we've sort of expanded in some sense, and you have a plethora of things that you can use, but none of which perfectly address what you're looking for. In some sense, I think coalescing, focusing on a smaller number of tools that are more general, that sort of solve problems end to end, I think would be would be interesting. And I think that's where, I, if I were to make a prediction, I would say that's where the industry and academic research is likely to go. Okay, very cool. Well, Aditya, thank you for coming on the show. It's been really awesome talking to you about all this stuff. Thank you so much for having me again. 